Welcome back to another episode of Bitfinex Talks. I'm your host, Ricardo Martinez. Today, my guest is Michael Ruiz of Sovereign Mindset. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Ricardo. Thank you for having me. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you on the show, man. Um, my first question for you is pretty simple. Um, I want to ask you what your Sovereign Mindset project is. Uh, it, on your Twitter profile, it says you're an entrepreneur, and I see that you're sort of like a life coach and mentor can you kind of expand on, on what exactly you're doing yeah so the sovereign mindset project it started off as a newsletter and it was just basically talking about how we can build more sovereignty in our lives both internal and external right um internal is being aware and conscious of our thoughts and making sure that we validate them against a um a backdrop of mental models to to you know employ them as our own as opposed to what's happened today in a lot of people that I've seen in society where they have these thoughts that have been implanted into their minds and they have a, a, a belief structure that uh, doesn't serve them well. So that's the inward part. The outward part is about maintaining independence from force and coercion of the state. And so figuring out how to build your life around those principles is primarily what I've been focusing on. And what I noticed is a lot of people would ask me for advice or they would say from my Twitter that, you know, my tweets have really inspired them to take action. And I started getting this idea to, you know, take that a little bit further and coach men uh, into how they can build more sovereignty in their lives. And part of that is naturally going to take you towards a path of personal development. And so over the past four months, I've been coaching guys. Um, through a cohort-based program, as well as one-on-one -on -one coaching to build better habits, um, identify their standards, right? Um, you know, identify their interests and just really pursue their goals. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the guys that join my program, they're Bitcoiners. And I think that the strength of the network is really backed by people. And if the people are weak, Right. So is the network. And so one of the goals here is to actually empower Bitcoiners um, through my program. Good stuff. Um, that was actually going to be my next question was how did you get uh, initially interested in Bitcoin? And if like financial education surrounding Bitcoin is like part of your sovereign mindset project? Yeah. So initially I got into Bitcoin just from understanding how the Federal Reserve worked. I was a big Ron Paul guy, um, you know, in 2008. I saw what happened with the financial crisis, and that's when I started digging, digging deep and trying to understand what was going on in the economy. Um, came across monetary policy, the creature from Jekyll Island, understood how the Fed worked, and so I naturally became a gold bug. And it was, uh, you know, wasn't too much convincing to go from gold to Bitcoin. Um, you know, my journey in the Bitcoin space has had many ups and downs, frustrations. But uh, around 2014, that's when I really started digging my heels in and, and just kind of, um, you know, studying what this technology is about and understanding the implications of what a Bitcoin standard would do for the world. Um, now, there's like this saying that Bitcoin changes people and it does. It changes the incentive structure. So people start thinking long term. Right. And I think we can take that a step further by actually by actually focusing in on those ways in which we can improve our lives and that's kind of how i've 
tied the two together between Bitcoin and personal development. It sounds like me and you had uh, very similar um, trajectories like into Bitcoin. Um, I was also kind of really interested in Ron Paul's campaign around that time. And I think another big factor for me was, was actually the Silk Road. I had a lot of friends that were like telling me about the Silk Road. I was a gold bug. And it, like you said, it wasn't hard to make that leap. Um, would you describe yourself as a Bitcoin maximalist or do you also have interest in other cryptocurrency projects? Um, no, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist in the most extreme sense. Um, but I don't necessarily have a lot of interest in other projects. Um, however, I do think that they, they may have merit down the line. It's not like I've totally excluded that possibility, but as far as a store of value and, um, you know, unit of exchange, um, I think that Bitcoin is going to be the winner. Like in the Pareto distribution is probably going to take 80% of the, you know, monetary and financial activity. And it'll be interesting to see what these other, other projects who are more technologically focused, what their role is going to be. Um, I, yeah, as far as that, that's, so that's my maxi stance. I still think that Bitcoin is going to take the bulk of economic activity, but I, I, I see some room for other coins or other projects. Okay, cool. Um, a lot of your tweets and stuff kind of revolve around privacy on Bitcoin. Why do you think privacy is so important for Bitcoin? Fungibility. That's basically it. Like the open ledger leaves, um, you know, I think of it as a double-edged sword, right? If if you have an open ledger in a, in a hostile environment where, you know, there are adversaries, they can use that information to create problems for you and create problems for the network in general. And so I do think, you know, obfuscating that I understand why an open ledger is important as well, right? It creates, it creates the necessary, uh, the necessary, um, accountability for the system to function for you to have faith that, you know, 21 million, uh, supply cap is, you know, secure and well now, um, what I see as a potential solution between those two is obfuscating the network, making it difficult to see which transactions are going where, but still having them validated um, in some type of settlement way at the end. So I don't know exactly the technical hurdles that are needed for that. I mean, I don't know what kind of changes are necessary for the um, protocol layer. Like whether it's a hard fork or soft fork or whether it's even feasible i've looked at a few things but i think that the more that we can obfuscate the the blockchain the better it is in general for the whole network to function uh and keep the incentive structure intact about a year ago i saw you on doug tuman's monero talk podcast uh that's basically how i discovered you um in that interview you said that you were going to kind of take a deep dive on how to use bitcoin privately uh, since then, a year later, what have you learned about Bitcoin privacy? So I haven't, I haven't taken that deep dive just because, uh, I, there's no use for me to do that right now. I don't have any reason to do that other than my own personal interest. And, uh, it's just something that I haven't gone down, um, um, at the moment. So, um, maybe in the future, but yeah, as of right now, there's no, there's no use for me to use it privately because I don't transact with anyone really. 
And so uh, everything is between me and third parties that use KYC. So, yeah. Well, um, my next question might kind of not be that relevant, but you've been a big advocate for fungibility. You mentioned it uh, just a few seconds ago. Um, in that interview with Doug, you also kind of mentioned that you used Wasabi and that you had challenges kind of managing your UTXOs. Uh, do you think the situation has improved or do you see potential for the situation to improve as far as fungibility in Bitcoin goes? I use Wasabi kind of as an experiment, you know, trying to figure out what privacy looks like on Bitcoin, right? Um, I haven't used any other privacy tools. So um, I don't know, you know, since then, like Wasabi's gone through uh, this kind of controversy where they, um, you know, they're like blacklisting addresses or something like that. Um, and so I haven't looked into Samurai. I hasn't, haven't looked into other privacy tools. So I couldn't tell you. And I got a lot of heat for that because I'm speaking about privacy and fungibility, but I'm, I'm really speaking from a conceptual level, right? Not, not from a user level. I'm looking at the network as a whole and trying to understand how it's going to evolve and what specific attack vectors are going to reveal themselves. And, you know, like I said, Bitcoin is run by humans. And so I think that in general, if it's easy to target people because of their transactions, right? That's going to cause a problem. That's going to deter people from using Bitcoin. Um, I think that there's only a certain percentage of Bitcoin users who are willing to go through the hoops and hurdles to privatize their transactions. And even then, right, any little slip up can reveal their identity. So they can think they're using Bitcoin privately and not even realize it, right? That they're not, that they've slipped up somewhere down the line and revealed their identity. So I think that there's a lot of challenges ahead and I speak about those challenges, but um, I can't, you know, I, like I said, I get a lot of slack for not using these privacy tools, but I just know that the hurdles there are, the friction there is not going to create the necessary uh, obfuscation for Bitcoin to act in a way where, you know, individuals or entities in general can't be, you know, pinpointed and targeted by, you know, certain adversaries. You, you mentioned that you don't really uh, transact that often and that you kind of use third party services uh, with the recent hack that happened to Bitcoin core dev Luke Dash Jr. Um, there's been a lot of flack surrounding self-custody. Do, do you self-custody at all or do you keep all your, your Bitcoin on exchange and are you primary, per, primarily just like a hodler? Yeah, so I rather not like speak towards my personal setup just because of you know security reasons. But um, I could say when I, what I saw from Luke Dash Jr. and I just took a quick glance is that it was still connected to a server, um, and you know that creates all types of his keys are on a server and that creates all types of issues, um, right? It's not I don't and his his server was in a location where other people had access to it. So um, I think that you just got to be really careful about how you store your keys. But I feel like there are a lot of tools and there are a lot of tutorials that can teach you very easily how to store your keys, how to generate your keys offline and how to store them safely offline. In a lot of your tweets, you kind of play like a devil's advocate role. Uh, when discussing Bitcoin, in your opinion, like where do you see room for improvement for the Bitcoin protocol itself? What's happening right now is that a lot of hash power is moving to America ever since that China ban. And so 
the more distributed that the Bitcoin network is, the more the more the risk is spread out, right? And so that's what gives this network its uh, durability, right? Is the fact that it's distributed and decentralized. So whenever I see people cheering on, you know, Bitcoin hash coming to America, I think that they're missing the bigger picture where it's like, this means that Bitcoin hash is being centralized in, in a specific location. And now we're more susceptible to a 51% like attack through regulatory capture. And so, yeah, I play devil's advocate because I'm not just this gung-ho Bitcoin is going to win. Nothing can stop it. I actually understand that there are a lot of vulnerabilities. I also understand that, you know, there is a big fight coming up. You know, Bitcoin disenfranchises a lot of powerful people. And they're not going to just let this, um, they're not going to let this technology liberate, you know, um, humanity without a fight. And so I don't think people have put that into perspective. And I think there's a lot of hubris. And so that blinds them to the dangers and risks that lie ahead. And so I, I okay. point that out. I, I poke at them with my Twitter. I, you know, I'm just like, hey, yeah, I love Bitcoin too. But like, you know, still look here, like. We haven't we haven't even begun to see what we're up against, you know, like and I try to put that in perspective because I don't I try to add balance to the Twitter conversation because I don't see too many people um, doing that. It's always, you know, blindly cheering on Bitcoin as if, you know, we face no adversaries, no enemies and that, you know, um, you know, right now we're in the honeymoon stage, right? We're in a, we're in a stage where. You can relatively operate with Bitcoin fairly easily and not face any um, backlash from any adversaries. But will it be like that in the future? And when it does happen, when that does happen, how does that change the incentive structure? And then how does that change in the incentive structure actually change network configuration? Does it make it more vulnerable? You know, like these questions I ask myself and I try to make people aware of them through my through my Twitter by playing the devil's advocate a little bit. Well, I think it's refreshing because I, I personally share some of your uh, points of view as far as like there's not enough dissenting thought in Bitcoin. Um, in the early days of Bitcoin, there was a lot of people that kind of would bounce these ideas off each other no matter what, even if they were controversial. And I kind of think as like Bitcoin's gone more mainstream, we've seen a drastic decline in people thinking adversarially. Yeah, the uh, number go up crowd has yeah. really like taken over and it's more of like number go up at all costs uh whether you know even if that means sacrificing some of the monetary principles that are embedded into the network it's like well you know we can make that uh <clears throat> we can make that uh, trade-off as long as the number goes up and you know i'm not in bitcoin for that right i'm in bitcoin or i'm interested in the technology and before it's monetary aspects at liberating humanity and allowing for free markets to flourish. I agree with you. Um, so you recently tweeted, and I think it was kind of received controversially that uh, people that think that Bitcoin cannot be stopped are security holes. Um, you just kind of touched on that. Uh, so I'm gonna skip that question. But the other question that I had was in relation to mining, which you also kind of just touched on, um, where you see it as a possible attack vector for regulators or the centralization of uh, hash power concentrating like in a single jurisdiction uh, could be problematic. What do you think about like Satoshi's original belief that in like one computer, one vote as far as mining goes? 
I don't, I don't think it played out that way, right? I think that we're seeing large mining farms um, start to sprout up and they have a significant portion of the hash under their control. And, it, and these are huge mining farms that operate at the intersections of the power grid. And these are easy targets. They've, you know, spent a lot of capital to set up their, their farms and they're not just going to pick up and go if the regulatory regime becomes demanding or hostile, right? They're going to comply. And so, you know, these miners that are operating in the United States and this uh, concentration of hash power here, I see as a significant threat to a 51% attack and a, and a sensor in the network. So I think that Bitcoiners should be wary of that and they should think about that. And so, you know, I, I also try to give solutions, right? Like I realized the network is just people like, you know, I don't know if people think that Bitcoin is some like autonomous, you know, artificially intelligent network that'll just like, um, that will just, you know, cor self-correct itself, but no, it's actually people. And so, you know, I try to also give um, suggestions on how we could further distribute a network. Like I think that there's a lot of opportunities for entrepreneurs to go to Africa, to go to South America, you know, and work with local governments or, or state governments and start to set up mining operations over there that further distributes and decentralizes the hash power. And so makes the network stronger in that regard. And so, you know, it's not just, um, I try not to just point out the vulnerabilities and attack vectors. I also try to point out how we can strengthen the network as well. Since you brought up Africa and South America, um, we've seen regions like these, like developing economies kind of leading the way in Bitcoin adoption. What are your opinions on that? Like we, we just saw a huge conference in Ghana, um, in Bogota. I live in Colombia in Bogota. There's been a couple big Bitcoin conferences. Um, do you feel that it's super important for these regions to kind of lead the way for Bitcoin Absolutely. adoption? Yeah, absolutely. There was another tweet that I put out, which was saying that, you know, in the United States, Bitcoin will be used as a tool for financial repression. And then the rest of the world will be used as a tool for liberation. And I think that's because in the United States, the ecosystem has kind of evolved under a regulatory regime that has allowed it to be captured. And I think going forward, you know, the United States, I think, has one of the most powerful central governments. They're not going to allow Bitcoin to just operate freely uh, in a way that allows everyday people to escape their controls, which are becoming much more, you know, onerous as each day passes by. Um, so I think in the free, like, as we saw with El Salvador, they're recognizing Bitcoin as a way to secede from this global monetary order. And um, as they're leading the way, I think more countries are going to pay attention to that because also the prosperity that has been uh, brought over, over there because of Bitcoin, you know, it's a, uh, Bitcoin is hope for humanity. And so, you know, in places where they allow this technology to freely flourish, it's going to attract these entrepreneurs and these people that just have a much more active and positive mindset about the future. And so, yeah, I think it's really important. I think I'm really bullish on those countries that adopt Bitcoin and allow it to um, and allow it to flourish freely. You've also mentioned Lightning as like a possible solution for your perceived shortcomings for Bitcoin. Do you use Lightning personally? And do you think that it's solved any of these like privacy issues or fungibility issues? I, I know it's improved spendability and like some of the scaling issues, but 
do you do you feel that it's improved privacy or fungibility in any way so i hear that it has i hear that it will i'm not entirely sure because i think there are arguments back and forth between that right i'm not technologically savvy enough to to know the nuances of that um i'm just going to let that play out a little bit more before i kind of uh do a deep dive and see where we're at um personally every time i went to go use lightning there were you know problems and bottlenecks i'm sure the technology has advanced uh since then so but i just haven't had any use to you know i haven't had any reason to use that lightning like i said like bitcoin now has become um like a like a passing interest of mine where i'll occasionally you know check up on it and see how it's doing but like right now i'm just focused on my coaching business so you know maybe down the line when more people start accepting lightning payments and stuff like that and um producing goods and services where they're demanding payment in bitcoin and specifically on the lightning network then i'll have a reason to use lightning and this is one of the things i try to get you know get through to uh bitcoiners as well it's like you know i think that a lot of bitcoiners spend a waste a lot of energy trying to orange pill people when they should just focus on building businesses and producing goods and services and then demanding payment in bitcoin like that's how you get that's how you're going to grow the network and expand uh its reach um i think that's going to be a lot more um effective than just uh trying to orange pill like your neighbors what what's your opinions on like free speech technologies that we've been seeing lately like keat or noster which allow people to communicate uh, with censorship resistance and to avoid being deplatformed like as peripheral technologies to Bitcoin. I think it's great. I think that the more innovation that we have in that space, the better. Um, I think that, you know, we see now with Twitter, the, the real dangers that there are to centralized communication platforms. Um, you know, luckily, Elon Musk has taken over as kind of like a benevolent dictator who supports free speech, but how long does that last? I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, when we have these open platforms that can operate as in a decentralized manner, which can't limit someone's speech, you know, I think that's, that's great. That's great because free speech in general, I think is a bedrock for a thriving and prosperous society. And so we need it in order for, for civilization to flourish. And um, if we can develop out technology that supports it, I think that's great. It seems like you and me kind of share a, a freedom first kind of mindset. Um, people have famously said that Bitcoin is like money for enemies and that everybody should be able to use it. What are your thoughts on people that think that Bitcoin's going to liberate humanity, but still kind of maintain like a status mentality? I think they're confused, right? I think that <laughs> like the, you know, if we think about the cardiovascular system of the state or, or, or some type of, you know, essential system that is necessary for it to function, it's the ability to print money and to control the money supply, um, at least to the degree that nation states exist today, right? They need to have that lifeline of money printing. And I think that a lot of these services or a lot of these services that people want to um, think that will come about from the state, they're not going to be able to be funded in a way that that they want them to, right? Like some some people want uh, uh, UBI and some people want uh, free healthcare and some people want all these social services to come from the state. 
I, I don't think that's compatible with Bitcoin. I think those things emerge from the free market in that case. So yeah, I just see those two, you know, ideas as inherently contradictory. And I think it's just going to take some time for people to figure that out. As someone who is a former gold bug and, and sees the importance of the gold standard and the impact of the world like that has abandoned the gold standard, do you see a future for gold in a world dominated by Bitcoin? Yeah, I think there's always going to be a place for gold. I don't know why, but I just think that human beings are naturally or innately attracted to it. Um, and I don't know why. And so... I, I do think that even in, in, as a monetary instrument, it will exist in some capacity, um, even if it's just as insurance money, right? Even if it's just as like the world going to shit and I need a, um, you know, I need something just in case that happens. You know, gold is always there as a last resort. So, um but I do think that Bitcoin is going to disp displace a lot of gold's market cap. So I realize that as well. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think is important for the listeners to know? I think that it's the realization that the network, the Bitcoin network, right? Even though they're miners. And um, I think that the, the backbone of the Bitcoin network is people. And so understanding that is a big deal because we can all you know affect the network with our actions and so um taking that into account you know just don't you know just don't take it for granted how much power you have to do things like i use the uh, you know el salvador and the surfing community there as an example how one guy turned that into a whole movement right and so we're powerful um and so don't don't uh don't underestimate that. Okay. Um, my last question for you is we've seen like Bitcoin's technology be applied to other use cases like stable coins and, and security tokens and things of that nature. Do you see like a future where like stocks and uh, securities will, will become tokenized? Possibly. Sure. Like, and I think it's going to make things a lot more efficient. Um, I don't know how that looks like. But I think we're starting to see the beginnings of it already. And I think just down the line, it's just going to, you know, become much more apparent on how all of this is going to evolve through the technological evolution of some of these, uh, some of these systems. But um, I think, you know, the world is going digital and, you know, things are happening at a much more rapid pace because of it. And it's going to be interesting to see how all this plays out. And I think that some of these things that are, are going to emerge. I mean, we can't even imagine right now. So I'm actually really excited about the future. Um, and yeah, it's going to be interesting. In a world that's like hyper Bitcoinized, do you see like cash existing at all? Or do you think it's going to be all digital? You, do you see like a future where people use like cash notes that represent like a, a fractionary amount of Bitcoin or anything like that? Yeah, it's a good question. I've thought about this as well. It's, um, you know, one of the things that Hal Finney mentioned early on was that there's going to be Bitcoin banks and the banks are going to, you know, the banks are going to um, basically give out promissory notes. Um, and I wonder if that can happen 
in in a Bitcoin world where we're going to be, you know, transacting with banknotes similar to how we were doing in the 17 and 1800s. I don't know. It's possible. Um, I still see a world where people want to use cash, um, but I don't know. They could be also, you know, a lot of people are using credit cards and using all types of apps on their phones. And so we could go down that way as well. So we'll see. Thank you so much for um, coming on the show and doing the interview, Michael. It's been a great pleasure discussing all this stuff with you. Um, if someone wants to be coached by you, uh, how can they follow you on social media? How do they get in touch with you? Uh, how do they do all that? Yeah. So the easiest way is um, on Twitter. And my handle is at SOV mindset. So if you just think store of value, but it's really short for sovereign, but SOV mindset. Okay, cool. Well, thanks again. It's, it, it was a pleasure.